May the words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. Well, it's the time of year when carol services are underway. We have one here tonight. And during last week I was invited to take part in a carol service up the road. My job was just to do one of the readings, so that was a pretty easy one to go to and to sing a few carols. That was good. Um, But the person who was leading the service uh, did a little homily, a little sermonette, and he spoke about Isaiah 9-6. It's a verse that we often apply to uh, Jesus and to Christmas. It's a verse that we're going to hear tonight as part of our our carol service. I think Clark's reading that one. For those of you that don't know what Isaiah 9-6 says, here it is. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. As I said, this is a verse commonly applied to Christmas and to Jesus. And the person giving the talk did exactly what we often do, and said in his message that this was all about Jesus, and Jesus fulfilled this prophecy. And as I heard him say that, Inside me, I could feel myself wanting to go, is that really true? Is that really what that was about? And I did really want to offer an alternative view. But I'd already told them that it wasn't a great idea to sing Te Hara Nui, because that just means great sin. It's a much better idea to sing Te Hari Nui. So I thought on this occasion, I'd better just zip it. And, well, now I can talk about it. This passage wasn't written about Jesus. We can apply it to Jesus, but that's a very different thing. Before we can apply it to Jesus, we first have to hear what that passage was about and why it was being applied to Jesus. The problem is that we so often reduce the Hebrew scriptures to a bunch of verses that foretell of Jesus. Verses that need to be fulfilled. And what happens then is we leave almost all the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures out. We have no idea what they say. And the bits we do read, well, we don't really know what they're saying because we're not really listening to them. We're too busy seeing them as applying to Jesus. And the result is we end up with a really warped idea about what the Hebrew Scriptures are all about. We end up missing the point. And that's a bit of a pity because the four gospel writers were unanimous. They're not unanimous about many things, but they are unanimous that the prophets played a crucial role in Jesus' understanding of who he was and what he was about and what his ministry was. His identity was shaped by his understanding of Torah as expressed by the prophets. He didn't see the prophets as foretelling about himself. Instead, they were the primary influence on his understanding of who he was and what his ministry was about. And the four gospel writers are unanimous that the prophet Isaiah plays a really crucial role in this. All four of them. And that's a big problem for us. Because we keep reading the prophets as just talking about Jesus. 
a bunch of verses that need to be fulfilled. And as a result, we have little or no idea about what Isaiah was about. And we have little or no idea about how Isaiah and the other prophets shaped Jesus' understanding of who he was. And that leaves us in grave danger of having no idea who this Jesus is that the Gospel writers are talking about. Because we don't get all the backstory. So let's have a little look at Isaiah. You might like to turn to your neighbour for 30 seconds and tell your neighbour everything you know about Isaiah. For some of you that won't take very long and for others of you it should take a long time. Bonnie, it should take ages because she has a degree in this stuff. what we know. So here's the first question. How many Isaiahs are there? So yes, there are at least three of them, and they come from different times, all in one scroll. So that's a little bit confusing. So the first Isaiah is the prophet Isaiah, and chapters 1 to 33 are his. They're attributed to him. Can anyone tell me any ideas about when he was prophesying, what he was, what, who were the kings, and what was happening in the world? No. Good try. Very close, but 120 years out. So, he is prophesying to the kingdom of Judah. Israel's gone. Uh, Israel's still there. The east to the south the kingdom of Judah. So there are two kingdoms. You all knew that, didn't you? There's a kingdom to the north called Israel, and that kingdom is the ten tribes up there, and there's the kingdom to the south of Judah, and that is Benjamin and Judah, and their capital is Jerusalem, and they have the temple, and all of their kings are descendants of David. So why is there a kingdom in the north? Because the ten tribes in the north got sick and tired of the heavy taxes and the burden placed on them by Solomon and his son. And when they said to his son, you have to let up, we will not tolerate this, his son Rehoboam said, not, a, not on your nelly, we need that money, we've got big capitals to build and things like that, I want to be important. So the ten tribes went and they left. And they set up their own kingdom, 
the capital in Samaria, their own temple, and their own places of worship. And their kings come from all sorts of different families because they kept having fights and killing each other. And Okay, well, and then, well, we get to the Samaritans in a minute, but, uh, but they are actually, for most of their history, the biggest and the most powerful and the most glorious of the, of the kingdoms. The kingdom of Judah down the south is the little one, the little brother, that kind of relies on the protection to the north of Israel. So, two kingdoms. So, Isaiah is in the south. He's in the kingdom of Judah. So, what's happening in the north, do we know, at the time of Isaiah? Any ideas? There are Assyrians roaming about. And the Assyrians were the nasty people of the time. They were brutal. And they came and destroyed the kingdom of Israel. So at the same time we have Hosea. You know the prophet of Hosea. He's in the north. He's the prophet to Israel. And he is dealing with that catastrophe. And once the Assyrians have destroyed Israel, shipped off most of the people and scattered them across the Assyrian Empire, shipped in a whole lot of other people into that part of the world, and they then intermarry, and those that follow the Torah, the five books of Moses, they become the Samaritans. So there's nothing good about them. They're descendants of the ten tribes. They don't go to the temple in Jerusalem, and they've intermarried with foreigners, which is a big no-no. So not even pure blood. So that's why the Samaritans and the Jews are loggerheads in the time of Jesus. They hate each other with a passion by the time we get to Jesus. So that's the backstory of there. So what do the Assyrians do once they've taken Samaria? They move on south and they besiege Jerusalem. So Isaiah is the prophet in Judah during this catastrophic time. The northern kingdom Israel disappears forever. The ten tribes disappear forever. And Jerusalem is under siege from those same Assyrians. And the king, during Isaiah's time, or a big chunk of Isaiah's time, is one of the great reforming kings, Hezekiah. He is one of the, one of the monumental kings. And so when we read Isaiah 9-6, that could apply to Hezekiah, that could apply to Josiah, great reforming kings. And, well, during this time, uh, the Assyrians are besieging Jerusalem, and then so- suddenly they break their siege. Uh, the Bible says because there was a whole lot of deaths in the camp, and the king of Assyria took fright and went home. Uh, there's at least one historian that thinks they may have suffered from cholera because the because the Jews blocked all the water supplies around the place. Um, so that's a possibility. The Assyrians actually say they won. So if you look at their records, their records say they defeated Jerusalem and returned the small state of Judah to vassal state. So who knows who was right? Hard to know. We can't tell. But that's, that's just history for you. So that's all Isaiah, chapters 1 to 33. But there are how many verse, how many chapters in the book of Isaiah? Quite a few. Yeah, quite a lot. 
53 is the best one. So there's more than 53. There's 66. Right. So 40 to 55 are called second Isaiah. So second Isaiah clearly comes from a later time, 120 years later, when the Babylonians come along and finish off what the Assyrians started. So the Babylonians destroy the southern kingdom of Judah. And they do it twice. The first time they're quite gentle. The king surrenders. He's taken off in exile, but he actually lives in, as an exiled king in reasonable splendor, actually. And a few of the leaders go with him, and it's not a very hard life in exile for him. But somebody else is put on the throne, and after a few years he decides he doesn't need to pay tribute to these Babylonians. And he stands up to the Babylonians. And for his efforts, the walls of Jerusalem are pulled down. The temple is destroyed. He is executed after he's seen his whole family um, executed before his eyes. Then his eyes are plucked out and then he's executed. And uh, a whole lot of the leaders are taken off into exile. A whole lot of the artisans are left, taken off into exile. And the remnant are left in this shambles of what was once the wonderful city of Jerusalem. That's what Second Isaiah is talking to, clearly. It's all about exile. There is no exile in First Isaiah because the Assyrians went away. And then Third Isaiah is again a bit later when they're trying to go home. And when they go home, it just doesn't pan out like they're hoping for. It's not a wonderful return they've all been looking to. So how come we have these three Isaiahs? Well, because it's thought these major prophets like Isaiah had schools of disciples around them who kept their words alive. And when a new situation arose, like Jerusalem falls and they're all taken off into exile, they are then the ones who reinterpret the words of Isaiah to that new situation. They're not words that just apply to that first situation of the Assyrians. They are now words of life and hope to this new situation where Jerusalem has fallen and they are taken off into exile. And then they keep those words alive for the return as well. So we have three chunks that come. Isaiah 1 to 33, 40 to 55, 56 to 66. But there's a gap. But wait. The gap that we read from today, from 34 to 39. And they, they kind of act like a bridge, because the passage we heard today is all about exile, and that's not the situation that Isaiah was in. And so we have these two chapters, 34 and 35, which are all about God's intervention, which in 34 is not good for the Edomites, and in 35 is great for the Judeans. And then... Chapters 36 to 39 are a direct quote of 2 Kings 18 to 19, which is all about Hezekiah in the face of the Assyrians. So it's a bridge from the situation that the prophet Isaiah was in to the situation that his disciples find themselves in 120 years later. And we heard from that bridge So when we hear passages like we heard from Isaiah this morning, it's important that first and foremost we need to hear them in their context. And so today Isaiah 35's context is 
addressing a people going into exile. And they are words of hope. Written for people in extraordinarily hard times. A people facing annihilation. Like we struggle to get just how cataclysmic that was. They are now living in in exile in a foreign land. Far from the land of their ancestors. Far from the land given them by God. A land where they had lived in the presence of God. And that living in the presence of God had centered around the life of the temple. But the temple is gone. And whenever you lost to a foreign power who believed in another God, that was a clear sign that their God was more powerful than your God. So generally what happened was you stopped believing in your God, because your God wasn't up much chop, you'd just been defeated, and you started believing in the more powerful God, the God of the people who won. So what do the people of Judah do in this situation? Their God has lost. Do they continue to believe in this losing God? Or do they go and believe in the gods of the Babylonians? That's the crisis that 2nd Isaiah is speaking to. And that is the crisis that the passage we heard this morning from Isaiah 35 is addressing. And they are words that are offered to them to help them work out what it means to be the people of God in this new situation. I mean, the big question is, are we the people of God? Do we keep being the people of that God, or do we change allegiance? And a whole lot would have changed allegiance. But for those who were left, how then are we the people of God? The temple is gone. How do we honour our God in this new situation, in these new times and places? So in the first instance, Isaiah is not prophecies about some far off time for when Jesus might come. They are prophecies for those people in that time about how to live their life now. And they are prophecies that talk about God's intervention. An intervention that is not good news for the Edomites if you read chapter 34, but is great news for them. And it will bring life and restoration both to the people and to the land. It's a restoration that required them as the people of God to live out God's mercy and generosity and compassion and justice. It's about how their community should function. About how their social and religious leaders should lead. And it's about how the people should treat each other and the land. And Jesus takes this set of prophecies from three separate times and he takes them as his mission statement. He says, this is what I'm about. And he says, I am living out the promises of Isaiah. So Isaiah 9 and Isaiah 35 and all the other chapters of Isaiah are not in the first instance about Jesus. But Jesus applies them to himself. And when he does does that, he is saying, I am the one through whom God is intervening. 
and all that was hoped for and promised in Isaiah to the people facing extermination from the Assyrians, the people in exile wanting to go home under the Babylonians, the people struggling with their new reality under the Persians, that is happening now in me. So when Jesus applies Isaiah to himself, we need to remember that he is talking about how their communities and societies should function, how their social and religious leaders should lead, and about how the people were to treat them, each other and the land. It wasn't just about us as individuals. So can we apply Isaiah to Jesus? Absolutely. But first we have to remember that it comes with baggage. And the problem with the other night was the baggage was left behind. And we were just left with some nice words that actually lost the meaning that was attached to them. And that the gospel writers knew was attached to them. The baggage was inherent in those words. When they apply those words to Jesus, the baggage goes with it. Our problem is we keep cutting the baggage off. It's the same with what we heard this morning. The words we heard this morning are words of hope to a wearied and beaten down group of exiles who are filled with grief, who are losing hope in a foreign land and are losing their sense of who they are as the people of God. And to those people... We heard those words from Isaiah. And then we heard them again, didn't we? In response to John's question, Matthew has Jesus using those words from Isaiah to describe the kingdom or the reign of heaven breaking upon them now. When God meets the people in their weariness, this time under Roman rule, their hopelessness, their grief, their lostness. And Jesus is, said, is saying, I am the one through whom God is intervening, bringing healing to them and to their communities. This Sunday, our theme is joy, which for some of us is really easy to think about. And for some of us, well, joy seems far away. For many, Christmas is a time of grief, a time of fear and dread, a time of despair of what hasn't been and what has been and what can't be. Actually, I think all of us carry, to some degree, some dread and fear. Dread and fear for our lives and for the world. At some level, we despair. And we have to acknowledge that if we are truly to know the joy that Christmas is about. And because of that, we join with John and we ask, are you the one who is to come or are we to wait for another? And Jesus continues to respond with Isaiah 35. Go and tell what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. The dead are raised and the poor have good news brought to them. And blessed is anyone who takes no offence at me. 
as we hear those words, I wonder where we see the blind receiving their sight, the lame walking, the lepers cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead raised, and the poor receiving good news. Because these are the signs of hope. These are the signs that joy is coming into our world. It strikes me as I read the prayers that we often read during our service, as I read the resources uh, that I read to write these sermons, that we have this assumption that all these things are happening out there and that we are the ones who offer the healing to those people out there. But actually, my hunch is that all of us here today, we are the ones who are blind and deaf and and are lame. We are the ones who need good news brought to us. When we are overcome by our fear and our despair and our hopelessness, when we struggle to find joy, then we become blind. Blind to the signs of God's work in the world. Blind to hope and peace and love and joy. We become unable to hear, unable to move, unable to act, unable to join those who live in hope unable to bring joy to others. Worse, through our inaction, we add to the grief and the hopelessness. So this Advent, we are invited to join John in asking the question. And we are invited to hear Jesus' response to us. And to know that he brings healing to us in our individual lives and invites us to bring that healing to our communities so that we might be people of hope and life right here in this land and around the world. So during this week I invite you to take time at the end of each day To think of the ways that you have been led away from joy. How is it, where is it that you need this healing? And I invite you at the end of each day to take time to give thanks for the way that God has brought you joy. And through you has brought joy to others. So let's spend a moment in quiet and reflect on that. What way what has led you away from joy? And in what ways has God brought you joy and through you joy to others?